Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $600 off Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, or Tread packages. Choose the package that's right for you with accessories like our cycling shoes, a heart rate band, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited time offer ends December 6th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer ends December 6, 2022. Excludes bike, bike plus, and tread basics. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Welcome once again to High Desert Radio, the voice of the Jewish Federation of New Mexico. And now, here's Federation President and your host for this episode, Ron Hart. This is High Desert Radio, the Jewish Federation of New Mexico, and I'm Ron Hart, welcoming today Dr. Alma Gottlieb, who will be speaking at the Jewish University in Santa Fe, and I'd like to talk a little bit with her about her background and her work. She's a cultural anthropologist, has published widely. She has outstanding awards that go from a Guggenheim Fellowship to National Endowment for Humanities, Woodrow Wilson, Wendell Grin and various uh, organizations. Welcome, Dr. Gottlieb. Thank you so much for the invitation. As a cultural anthropologist, you mentioned that you're impassioned by understanding all things that are human, and you're particularly interested in directing your research toward tolerance, reducing injustice, and understanding um, people and how people live. could you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, thanks. That's a really great place to start because it's really the big picture behind everything I do. I've studied many diverse topics um, and many diverse communities around the world. Uh, so it might seem that my career is perhaps fragmented or disconnected, but in fact, the unifying thread behind everything I do is trying to understand Uh, people in all of our complexities and um, reduce the sadly all too human tendency toward othering, by which I mean thinking about other people as so different from us that we begin to lose track of our shared humanity. Uh, So I've started out my career initially a very long time ago as an undergraduate, um, being fascinated by Native Americans as an American. uh, Once I started delving into the uh, early history of this continent before European conquest, um, that was probably the first group of uh, other people who lived lives very differently from how I did and and those I know around me did. Um, And I branched out from there to uh, looking at Africa, and I've really devoted the rest of my career uh, especially to looking at Africans. Um, As a white American, I think it's really critical uh, to engage with understanding peoples who are often vilified, um, put in a savage slot, and seen as so irredeemably uh, different from us that it's hard to Uh, remember that we're part of the same species and have the same evolutionary history. So my early research was in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, living in circumstances very different from what I'd grown up with in small uh, rural villages in the rainforest that lacked electricity and running water. Uh, The residents of these villages um, were what anthropologists sometimes call animists, um, worshipping 
many spirits uh, and ancestors. More recently, I've engaged with a a very different section of Africa uh, in uh, Cabo Verde, the islands off the west coast of Africa, uh, 350 miles from Senegal in the Atlantic. Um, and uh, these folks uh, certainly are living lives that appear more modern uh, to uh, folks uh, like myself, uh, and yet have um, many components of their history that are quite different from uh, mine. So I'm sort of juggling um, uh, otherness and uh, difference and separation and humanity and constantly looking for ways to, to find the right balance to dignify um, difference uh, and yet uh, not vilify it. Yes. Yes. You were president of the uh, Society for um, Humanistic Anthropology. And um, could you comment a little bit more for, for people who are not familiar with the, the field of anthropology? Um, what is that society within the larger professional field? Yeah, that's a, a, a society that's really dear to my heart um, because it keeps reminding us uh, as anthropologists that um, in addition to being social scientists, meaning um, valuing precision and scientific methods and some version of replicabil replicability and um, uh, the kinds of inquiry into uh, facts uh, that all scientists of every stripe value. Uh, we also want to keep front and center uh, the emphasis that the object of our study is not a thing. It's not a chemical. It's not a body part. Um, it's uh, the set of complete human beings uh, with all of our messinesses, all of our complications. Uh, and in order to really... Um, respect uh, those complexities and subtleties. Um, people with a humanistic stripe often like to make use of a variety of uh, writing strategies and other strategies beyond writing a simple, some, somewhat dry, scientific-sounding report, as if we were reporting on uh, a body of cells uh, or another species. Uh, when we write in that kind of dry scientific uh, term, it sometimes has the unfortunate unintended consequence of reducing the human subjects to, to, to something that doesn't sound fully human. <laughs> and so people who call themselves humanistic anthropologists like to experiment with different writing forms. Um, I myself have um, made use of narrative. I'm married to a writer, Philip Graham, and from him, uh, I've uh, learned and borrowed many narrative techniques. And in writing, for example, about people... Um, replicating conversations that we've had. Um, I think that makes it easier for a reader to get into the heads of somebody else when we can, in a sense, eavesdrop on their lives via conversations. It also puts uh, people who might seem to be prone to be slotted into that so-called savage slot uh, onto an equal footing with us because a conversation by definition uh, is rooted in equality. Uh, it, in equality rather than inequality. <laughs> um, yeah. 
so conversations, I think, are a particularly great um, genre uh, to engage uh, with a humanistic uh, bent. Other humanistic anthropologists um, have written poetry, short stories, um, ethnographic fiction rooted in their research, but packaged in a more friendly, uh, user-friendly or reader-friendly form than the typical scientific uh, report. Yes, yes. Um... Actually, the, the first time I met you was at an anthropology meeting in uh, 19, the 1990s. And you and Philip, in fact, were doing a session together talking mm. about uh, how you were interweaving your, your writing styles. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And in the book Parallel Worlds, which won the Turner Prize for, the best, um, the, uh, for best ethnographic writing. Am I getting that mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the book that two of you put out at that point won this very important prize. Um, and it's, it's fascinating writing to see how the two of you interact. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we wrote that book together early in my career. It was the first foray that I attempted, um, thankfully with, you know, a master of writing, uh, into a different kind of writing beyond what I'd been trained in graduate school uh, in a more cut and dried scientific prose. And I have to say, after um, working with Philip on that book, uh, and the book was written for a general audience, it's a memoir of our fieldwork, uh, the first uh, two fieldwork engagements we had in these small villages in West Africa. Um, and it's written in the first person, alternating first person uh, sections by Philip and me. So we, we author our own sections in the singular right. first person. Right. Um, and we have no footnotes and no bibliography. And Philip, as a writer, exercised veto power over any scientific jargon <laughs> that I might have been tempted to um, insert. And I retrained myself into writing uh, in a very different style. And ever since then, um, all of my writing, I think, has at least um, made some use of those kinds of narrative techniques of crafting a story, of including dialogue, uh, drawing fully, um, I hope, uh, drawn characters uh, so that readers can get a sense, not just of a group of people, the bang do this, the bang do that, that's the group of people I've been working with in Ivory Coast, but this bang person named Amla, this bang person named Kofi did this. Right. Um, and by deconstructing uh, groups like that and reminding readers that groups are ultimately made of individuals and that individuals have their own biographies and that they're not replicas or factory um, clones of one another. I think that's another uh, really powerful way that um, as social scientists who are also writers, uh, we can remind our readers um, of our shared humanity. Right, right. So in your work in Africa, to me it was interesting uh, you've moved around up the coast of Africa uh, yes. to arrive to uh, Cabo Verde. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, could you talk a little bit more about the experience there? Now, I, I know that you've looked at the last 500 years of Jewish influence, more or less 500. Um, the Portuguese converse was arriving, and you, you also mentioned the uh, Moroccan Jewish influence that arrived there. Could, could mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that background and, um, 
and eventually how that arrives in the in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. To, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, you're right that I did move around the coast um, from the Francophone section of Africa to the Lusophone Portuguese um, speaking section of Africa from the rainforest um, into a more temperate zone. Um, it took me um, quite a few years to make that switch. Um, it was um, a, a thought, well thought out and deliberate and in some ways difficult uh, decision um, having to do with the politics of um, Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and it's a process that I chronicled actually um, in the first bit of writing that I published about the new work in Cabo Verde uh, in a book uh, that I titled The Restless Anthropologists, right, uh, right. a collection of essays that I um, edited and included one by myself about anthropologists who switch field sites in mid-career um, and try out uh, new communities. Um, I chose Cabo Verde for many different reasons, um, one of which was that um, having been raised as an American Jew myself, I decided that it was time in mid-career to actually make use of my own identity and also explore um, nooks and crannies of my own heritage uh, with which I was less familiar. I had been raised as a relatively secular, certainly reformed Jew with grandparents who were um, practicing Orthodox Jews. And so as a child, I straddled two worlds uh, even within the Jewish community, let alone uh, the the Jewish and non-Jewish uh, community. I think it is one of the things that drew me to anthropology because um, having commuted back and forth between uh, reform right. and practice in Jewish right. communities from a very early age, young childhood, right. I intuitively sense that um, there are many different ways to live a life, <laughs> uh, right. even um, you know among uh, co-religionists in the same state. Um, Cabo Verde has a particularly fascinating history, and um, I was originally drawn to it not because of the Jewish connection, um, but because of language. Uh, My husband and I started listening to a lot of Portuguese music, uh, fell in love with the music, and fell in love with the language, decided to start uh, learning the language to understand the music. And um, as I started uh, reading in Portuguese, decided to start reading the history of Cabo Verde, uh, uh, which was probably the one country in the entire continent of Africa about which I knew the least. Um, As a trained Africanist, I taught the history of Africa for many, many years, and that was the one country about which I'd never said a thing. (laughs) And um, once I decided to look into it, I became more and more fascinated by many things, and perhaps the one thing that most shocked me was reading this early Jewish history of the country, a fact of which I had been entirely unaware and of which all of my Africanist colleagues were entirely unaware. So that's, as a scholar, something that's really exciting to find. Um, And of course, as a Jew, it also spoke to me in, you know, really interesting ways. I don't have Sephardic ancestry myself and... um, 
So um, I also said about learning the history of um, the Sephardic diaspora. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges in taking on this new project, which has a very deep and robust and fairly well-documented history. The history is still being documented, but it's, um, it's started. Uh, so it's taken me a while to start publishing. Um, I have published several articles. I've given a lot of talks, um, and I'm now... Um, fully ready to um, finish the book that I started a long time ago. Um, but um, I won't say that I've mastered the history, but certainly there's been a lot of history to delve into. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the things that fascinated me about the project um, methodologically as an ethnographer is the fact that it is a global diaspora, um, like other aspects of the Sephardic diaspora, which um, is global. Uh, the Cabo Verdean diaspora is also global. Um, whenever I meet a new Cape Verdean, um, one of the things they'll often tell me first is giving me a list of all their relatives around the world. <laughs> and uh. every Cabo Verdean I've met anywhere in the world, and I've met a lot in many different places, uh, can always recite relatives on at least two other continents and some on three or even four. Um, yeah. Yeah. And much of that has to do with the nature of the early Portuguese empire in the 15th and 16th centuries, which was the first global um, empire. Right. And um, so Cabo Verdeans are a very uh, cosmopolitan uh, people, unlike uh, the people in the rainforest with whom I've been working, and that was a real difference for me. And the option to find Cabo Verdeans many, many places around the world, anywhere there's water, there'll be a Cabo Verdean. Um, uh, being from an island nation, they tend to right. feel comfortable um, water, um, right. makes the project really um, fun for me as well. And, and the, the thing of memory and culture, um, the so the the early Portuguese who arrived there were many conversos, of course, and uh, and we do have that connection with New Mexico, uh, but the the interesting the difference between New Mexico and Cabo Verde is New Mexico is a remote. Um, conversos arrived here in the northern mountains of New Mexico because it was a remote region. They were mm -hmm. distant from the Inquisition offices, uh, relatively safe. Um, the Cabo Verdeans were an, an island which also can be a refuge place. Um, but as you mentioned, they're much more cosmopolitan. There's a, this diaspora of going out into various parts of the world. How, does, how, does, how is the memory maintained of a Jewish past or or which piece of identity, what, what's happening there? Yeah, I love those questions. Um, I should probably back up and just for um, uh, listeners who are maybe less familiar, explain um, the Cabo Verde Islands were unoccupied when they were first um, rediscovered by Portuguese mariners in the mid 15th century. Um, and uh, this was the period of global expansion by uh, Portuguese and other mariners. Um, and, uh, many Portuguese started coming to occupy uh, the islands and the more historical research being done in the archives by my historian colleagues, um, the more we're finding that a disproportionate um, number of those early Portuguese settlers on the islands uh, were Jews, either practicing Jews or conversos, people who had converted to uh, Catholicism, either by choice or by force, because the um, 
efforts of the Portuguese crown, which was allied uh, structurally with the Catholic Church or Christian Church at the time, um, uh, was starting increasingly to compel uh, Jews to convert. And uh, with the uh, 1496 order of expulsion in Portugal of all Jews, and then the revision that any Jews could remain as long as they um, converted to Catholicism, a large number of Portuguese Jews and also Spanish Jews who had entered Portugal after they were expelled from Spain um, started leaving the continent in large numbers. Uh, they went mostly to better known places. Amsterdam was the number one destination in Europe, Istanbul the number one destination um, in the Mideast. Um, once uh, Columbus crossed the ocean um, and uh, started making um, inroads into conquering uh, native peoples in the Americas. Uh, many Jews also started coming uh, to the Americas, including ultimately New Mexico, as you're mentioning. Um, and then a tiny proportion of them wound up uh, going to Cabo Verde. So um, in those early years when Cabo Verde was originally empty, uh, most of the uh, Jews who arrived uh, were men. There were some women, but a larger number of men. Um, they, uh, both Jewish and uh, Catholic Portuguese, um, started uh, importing Africans, um, mostly as slaves, but not entirely, uh, into the Cabo Verde Islands. And many of these men, both Jewish and Catholic, um, started um, uh, cohabiting with and sometimes marrying legally um, African women who were sometimes their slaves and sometimes not. So there are a lot of complicated politics of um, race in those early uh, years. Um, although they had fled the Inquisition, as all Jews did at the time, um, the Inquisition followed them uh, to Cabo Verde, as it did to the New World. Uh, the Inquisition was very active in Mexico. Uh, that's what uh, compelled uh, Jews in Mexico to flee north. Um, but the Inquisition really cast a long shadow, even in the hills of New Mexico, which is, I think, what accounts for the fact that these folks became what we now call crypto-Jews, hiding their own religion. And something very similar essentially happened with the Jews of Cabo Verde. Uh, the Inquisition didn't open an active um, court system uh, to try people in Cabo Verde, but they sent spies from Lisbon to Cabo Verde. And the spies reported on many people who they claimed were openly practicing uh, Jewish practice. It's hard to know uh, how accurate that was. It probably was accurate for some and not for others. Um, but some of these folks actually were shipped back to Lisbon and tried by the Inquisition. And those who weren't were terrified. Um, but So there was um, a pall cast on these islands, which originally were uh, billed as an island of refuge and soon became um, an island of fear instead, or a set of islands, there are 10 islands. Um, and so Jewish practice, as it did in New Mexico, really went underground. Um, so despite the what I'm calling the cosmopolitan outlook, um, there was also, that was, I would say, counterbalanced um, by an insular uh, sense of terror. Um, the Inquisition uh, really created what some scholars call a, a, a 
three to 400 reign of terror um, that had a global reach. And it's really only recently, uh, as with the um, descendants of crypto Jews in New Mexico, uh, that Cabo Verdeans have begun either discovering uh, or acknowledging um, what they might have known but had um, refused to publicly acknowledge uh, their Jewish ancestry. So these are very parallel processes in very different spaces. Right, right. So how are the people today dealing with this identity, with this rediscovered or re-acknowledged identity of their Jewish heritage? What, what, What are they doing with it? Yeah, well, that's that's the bulk of my book. <laughs> so that's yeah. why it's so fascinating to me as an anthropologist. Um, and one of the reasons I was really drawn to the um, project is this is such an exciting moment. Um, this moment of cultural rediscovery and recuperation of suppressed memories is really exciting for a lot of these Cabo Verdeans. And um, they are... Um, incorporating the knowledge in very different ways, a a spectrum ranging from, you know, curiosity all the way to uh, conversion to orthodoxy and everything in between. It's not one um, practice or habit or pattern. It's many. And that's what's so interesting because they're in touch with each other. So those who are not practicing um, when they meet Others who are, are interested in some cases that it inspires them to practice, in other cases it doesn't. Um, But there are some really interesting conversations across that divide from, you know, not at all practicing to uh, practicing uh, quite actively. And seeing the conversations and and, um, refashioning of self, I think, is particularly interesting. Um, The one ingredient that makes their experience is quite different from those of the crypto Jews in New Mexico is race. Um, Many of these Cabo Verdeans uh, consider themselves as uh, black uh, or African or those who are in the U.S. African-American. And um, to incorporate a Jewish component into um, an identity of color uh, in this racialized climate is especially intriguing. And it's one of the things that most excites me as a humanist uh, dedicated to countering others, um, thinking about incorporating those uh, quite distinct identities, uh, black and Jewish, into one subjective self um, is really intriguing. They're not the first black Jews. There are, there are quite a few other uh, groups of black Jews. Uh, there's now an association uh, for the scholarly study of the relations between blacks and Jews. is a very new organization formed maybe about seven or eight years ago. And they've uh, now had uh, several international conferences um, So there's an increasing, I think, excitement on the part of scholars uh, to recognize this moment um, of um, African-Jewish conversations that are taking place on um, several registers. Yeah. Yeah, the the title of your talk, which is Across the Seder Table, you know, Mm -hmm. Africa Across the Seder Table, uh, Mm -hmm. is very interesting and it captures that that sense. you know, one of the other things that comes into this, the, the process of re-Judaization, uh, you mentioned uh, that, of, of course, there's the entire gamut of, mm-hmm. of reactions to mm-hmm. this identity and this heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, what about re-Judaization? Those who want to become Jewish and, and establish that link. You mentioned that there are some who become observant, who become orthodox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could, could yeah. You, and, yeah. And the title of my talk is both a metaphor and a literal um, comment, because in Boston, there is now an annual Passover Seder um, that unites roughly 100 um, Cabo Verdeans and 100 American Jews, literally at uh, 20 Seder tables, oh. uh, each of which has uh, five um, Jews and five Cabo Verdeans. <laughs> um, oh. So it's by design meant to literally promote conversations across the Seder table, um, or in this case, across 20 Seder tables. Um, and at these events, I've now attended quite a few, and I'm on the organizing committee for um, for the event. Um, a lot of Cabo Verdeans are uh, meeting uh, Jews for the first time, as far as they know, they may well have met other Jews without having any knowledge, but they're first having conversations with uh, people who are um, uh, obviously Jewish, and in and it often has a really interesting effect on them. Um, nobody initially leaves those seders saying, I'm converting tomorrow, <laughs> but it yeah. starts a process of introspection, and uh, some of them discover uh, for the first time that it's possible that they had Jewish ancestry that they didn't know about. Some of them discover that absolutely they must have had Jewish ancestry that they didn't know about. Some of them have confirmed a suspicion that they might have had Jewish ancestry, but they weren't sure. But there are various ways to um, confirm that. And um, if and when that's confirmed, um, once you find out that your ancestry is quite different from anything you knew um, or is perhaps something closer to what you thought it might be, but you weren't sure, that reconfigures reconfigures yourself, right? And once you start reconfiguring yourself, that's a really deep existential process that has um, unexpected consequences, some of which is sometimes actually converting, you know? Um, So some men are getting themselves circumcised, for example, so that they can uh, join a conservative congregation. Uh, Some of them are uh, becoming active members of uh, congregations. Uh, That's a minority. Most of them are not. Um, for uh, uh, For those who don't become that level of Um, involved, um, they're often doing things that are more private and personal, but nevertheless meaningful. They may start observing um, Passover, because that's often their entree through this community event. Um, They may start reading um, a lot about the history of Judaism. They may start uh, reevaluating their understanding of the politics of the Mideast crisis in Israel. Um, they may start reading about the Holocaust and World War II and the history of oppression and start seeing their, the own, their own history of oppression, which they may have only thought about in racialized terms, suddenly in religious terms as well. So there are a lot of different paths um, towards rethinking uh, what their own understanding of their place in the world might mean. Yes, yes. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you so much for leading us into this uh, incredible world of of your work and uh, Judaism in Africa, which uh, is is a new thing for many people, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And uh, you will be giving the lecture on this at the Jewish University uh, talk series in Santa Fe this week. And we look forward to hearing the more complete story. Thank you. And I love the questions and um, I'm looking forward to um, more uh, at that event. Thanks so much for um, the thoughtful conversation. Uh, on behalf of High Desert Radio, we thank you and uh, look forward to further conversations. That's it for this edition of High Desert Radio. Thanks so much for listening. High Desert Radio is the voice of the Jewish Federation of New Mexico. Remember, in order for us to continue providing quality programs like High Desert Radio and to continue our work in service to Jewish seniors, Holocaust survivors, low-income families, children, young professionals, Israel, and more, the Jewish Federation of New Mexico relies entirely on the generosity of listeners like you. Make your contribution today to jewishnewmexico.org. Remember, you can subscribe to this series on iTunes and be sure to visit us at jewishnewmexico.org. Till next time, for High Desert Radio, I'm David Wolf. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.